A woman who's deeply insecure and feeling unworthy literally and physically shrinks herself. Her body language is smaller. Her voice is softer, you know, all those things. But men have had a slightly different message that they've been brainwashed with, which is you don't have enough. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough cars. You don't have enough girls. And so the most insecure man is often the one who does the opposite of the woman. Instead of shrinking, he physically expands. The business world often rewards a man's insecure behavior and it punishes a woman's insecure behavior. So you have this gap. If you achieve as a woman or you're, you're constantly working through this chip while also having imposter syndrome and shrinking yourself. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We're bringing the best and the brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is Lisa Carmen Wang. Lisa is the founder and CEO of Bad Bitch Empire, a community investment platform building unapologetic worth and wealth for women. She's also a former four-time USA national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur, angel investor, VC, certified executive coach, and a global speaker. What can't she do? It's awesome. And Lisa is a graduate of Yale University and began her career at a $15 billion hedge fund is now on a lifelong mission to help women build unapologetic worth and wealth. She built multiple companies and recently published her book, The Bad Bitch Business Bible, and is the host of the Bad Bitch Empire podcast. And I'm excited to have her on. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam. I'm excited to be here. I, I, we were just chatting beforehand and we, and we talked about how we met last year at, um, at the unrevealed event, uh, down at Art Basel. And I had the opportunity to watch you, uh, you are a master at your craft. You interviewed Rebecca Minkoff and I just sat back and like, that is how you do it folks. So kudos to you. And that was, um, the impetus for me to really dig in and see what this Lisa lady is all about and, and what is she building and what has she done? And it's just absolutely incredible. Um, and as you know, as a, as a podcast host too, when, when you dig into, the research on someone, you get those, those aha moments. And I did not know that, that you were a gymnast at a young age and let alone any gymnast, but a championship gymnast and a hall of fame gymnast. So if you don't mind me hitting the rewind button, where, where did, where did that come from? What was it age nine, 10? Where, where was that? Where did that? Let's not even talk about the passion because you have to build up to the passion. Do you remember like when you, your first like lessons when you were little? Yeah. So I started gymnastics when I was nine years old and it's a really funny story how I got into it. And, uh, it was in third grade, we had something in school called fine arts day. And in fine arts day, there were no math, no science classes. It was, you could sign up for singing, dancing, all these really cool, just artsy, creative classes. And there were two classes that I heard the teacher say, and I just immediately lit up. And those two classes were the Beanie Baby making class and the, the Baby making gymnastics class. class. <laughs> and I was an avid collector of Beanie Babies. For anyone who remembers in the 90s, the mm -hmm. value of beanies were skyrocketing. I was just like collecting, going to McDonald's, getting the mini Beanie Babies. And I was so obsessed. And this was a class to teach you how to make Beanie Babies. And the problem was I heard all these other kids talking and they were talking about the gymnastics class and the Beanie Baby making class amongst others. But I realized that there was a problem. And the problem was that my last name was at the end of the alphabet. And 
the teacher mm. always goes alphabetical A to Z. And so that meant there was a very slim chance that I would get the classes that I wanted because I would choose last. And so for some reason on that day, I decided to take action. And I went to the teacher and I said, you know, it's just not fair that the second half of the alphabet always has to go after the first I'm, half of I'm the I'm with you on that one. P's in the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, well, I can't just change the rules, but what I can do is put it up for a vote. And so I took that as the moment where I was like, okay, this is, this is where I create change. And so I stood up and I rallied the second half of the alphabet and I put my fist in the air and I just said, it's just not fair that we always have to go after the first half of the alphabet. And, you know, she ended up putting it up for a vote and the second half of the alphabet won by one M and one vote, which meant that we got to go first, which meant that I got to go first. And then I did eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and I landed on the gymnastics class and took that first class and fell in love and the rest was history. And the next 10 years of my life um, was then defined by that one. There's so much to unpack in that story into itself. And we could probably do an hour podcast just on that conversation right there. But there's a part of it that, did you have that tenacity at that young age to say, screw this, I don't like what I'm seeing here. I'm gonna take charge and choose my destiny. Was was that something instilled by you by your parents? I mean, if you could look back that far, that's pretty cool. I have no idea. I have no idea where it came from. I mean, I think that... I've definitely always been a perfectionist. I've always been a hard worker. I think I've always been somewhat in tune to um, injustice or things that don't make me happy. And of course, when I was younger, I didn't have necessarily the confidence all the time to really assert my voice. But I think growing up as one of the few Asian girls in a very white neighborhood in the Midwest. So I was born in Wisconsin. I grew up in between Wisconsin and and Chicago and um, always feeling like an outsider being made fun of for my accent and which I don't have any accent whatsoever today. Um, But that was also part of the commitment when I was made fun of when I was younger that I said, I'm going to get really good at English. And, um, yeah, there, there's been a definitely chip on my shoulder of like trying to prove that I'm worthy and that I belong and that I'm just as good. Let's talk about chips on the shoulder for a moment here. I want to take a little bit of a left turn. What, let's talk about the, the, the power of that chip, mm-hmm. right? Where, where have you been able to really harness it, you know, looking back on it now, like that chip? Has chips been a good thing for you? I mean, my my entire life is a reflection of the the high achievement and accomplishment that comes from. Uh, I think all high achievers have this. All people who have big goals, there's a there's like a combination of fear of not reaching your potential, fear of not being good enough, fear of failing, fear of disappointing yourself and others, and. Um, actually my very first podcast that I released was called the enoughness podcast, which was the question of when is it ever enough? And when am I ever going to be enough? Because I did achieve success, uh, very early on as a gymnast and, you know, going to Yale and all these things. And I realized that, um, external success was not translating to internal worthiness and enoughness. And so I explored that very publicly asking all these successful people, do you feel like you're enough? And I 
the answer was pretty much no. No one actually deep down feels fully like they are good enough. And um, and uh, one thing that was interesting was I noticed a pattern uh, and one particular difference between how men answered the question or manifested the lack of enoughness and how women did. And it comes from the way society has brainwashed women and said, you are not enough in your being. You're not pretty enough. You are not skinny enough. You are not brave enough, courageous enough, experienced enough, smart enough. And that woman internalizes that lack of enoughness in her being. And so a woman who's deeply insecure and feeling unworthy literally and physically shrinks herself. Her body language is smaller. Her voice is softer, you know, all those things. But men have had a slightly different message that they've been brainwashed with, which is you don't have enough. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough cars. You don't have enough girls. You don't have enough you know, accolades and property. And so the most insecure man is often the one who does the opposite of the woman. Instead of shrinking, he physically expands. Overcompensates. Right. Um, But the big problem is that the business world often rewards a man's insecure behavior and it punishes a woman's insecure behavior. So you have this, this gap of like, you know, if you, if you achieve as a woman or you're, you're constantly working through this chip while also having imposter syndrome and shrinking yourself. That's, that's powerful. That's powerful stuff. I want to pause for a second. I'm curious um, if you don't mind sharing your, your parents, did they push you too hard? Did they push you just enough? Did they push you not enough? My parents definitely were hard workers themselves. They immigrated from China after the Cultural Revolution with my dad with just a couple hundred dollars, you know, in his pocket. And um, I think that uh, what I what I got from my dad, especially being the like very ambitious, very smart, um, very driven, but also I think have he also had. Um, imposter syndrome being a foreigner in the US and having to learn English at the age of 30. Can't um, imagine that. And, and, Something we uh, take for granted. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um and and figuring out how to then thrive in this new country and build a life for his family and um and I think that what a lot of especially immigrant kids feel is that they know how much their parents have sacrificed and so there is this level of immigrant guilt and expectation that, okay, you are now carrying the weight of their unlived dreams or their sacrifice on your shoulders. And, um, my parents, I never felt that they were there. They weren't overbearing, but they definitely had high expectations for me combined with my own high expectations of self. Um, and so, and also the sport of gymnastics being a extremely, uh, difficult sport that emphasizes toxic perfectionism. Um, yeah, let's let's talk that. about that. Let's let's talk about let's talk about your g- gymnastics journey. What what is what is one of those misconceptions out there about the gymnastics world that people might see on TV and they think one thing but it's actually quite the opposite. Well, when you look at gymnastics it looks like effortless and you realize that in order to do those things you're training 10 hours a day sometimes and um you're also put under extreme pressure to have your body be a certain way, a certain weight. Um you're constantly scrutinized. It's it's often a a, a very abusive environment, um physically, emotionally, mentally, verbally, everything um and you're a young girl 
that doesn't have your voice or your any experience and um, you are told that if your coaches love you and paying attention, they're yelling at you and they're telling you how you know fat and ugly and imperfect you are, that that means that they they believe in you. And and so they motivate through power and fear. And of course, you know, looking back, I I did become a champion, um, but you know, at what cost? <laughs> and at, at at what cost? I mean, that's that's an that's now you're able to, to to look back on it and you had an incredible gymnastics journey, incredible career. And for I guess conventional measurement, I guess the Olympics would be the goal. And you didn't make it to the Olympics. Could you share a little bit yeah. about what what that was like and what it felt? And did you did you feel like you were a disappointment to your parents, to yourself? What I can't even imagine putting in that that much hard work. I mean, I I can't be in that place. And I would love for you to tell us what that's like and and what you've learned from that. Yeah. So I set a decade long dream for myself when I was nine, and I once I fell in love with the sport and I realized that I was good. Um, I was told that I had the possibility of, you know, real shot of making the Olympics. And so that was a, a decade long goal that I had. And I ended up, um, I was on track for it. I was national champion. I was on the world championship team. You're doing everything right. You were hitting the marks. Yeah. Yeah. And I ended up, um, missing the world championship, like the qualification by 0.25 tenths of a point. Um, and which is like a, a toe, if you think about how slim that margin was. Jeez. And yeah, it was one of the most difficult moments of my life um, because I had sacrificed at my parents, my coaches, you know, had really put a lot uh, like riding on me. And um, I felt like a massive failure and a disappointment. And um, I think that it, it really did shatter my identity as who I was because I had seen myself as I am the gymnast and I, that's what I do. Um, and like suddenly when that dream, when you put like everything into your dream and suddenly it's not there anymore, it's, um, it's very tough to, to figure out what to do next. That's, I mean, it's unfathomable. I mean, I, I, like, as you're talking, I'm trying to relate in ways, you know, everyone, everyone can relate and everyone's life is different. We've all had tremendous failures and, and disappointments. Take us to that that time right afterwards. Were you? Yeah. Did you say? Did you say like I'm done? I am done with gymnastics. Screw it. I gave it my all. I'm done. I'm now going to focus on my education with something else. Or were you stuck in a dark place for a while? What was that like? Well, the same. Just around the same time that I missed the Olympics, I got uh, acceptance to Yale University, which was also my dream school, and I ended up, uh, you know, really thinking about how I wanted to end this chapter of my life. And it just didn't feel right to end it losing. Uh, mm -hmm. because what I, what I, when I looked inside, I realized that I didn't have the identity of a gymnast. I had the identity of a fighter and a winner. And that's what I was. And winners never leave when they're down. And so I ended up deferring Yale for a year and bought a one-way ticket to Russia, which was pretty crazy, um, to train at the Russian Olympic training center. And, for the next nine months, that's what I did. It was the most rigorous training center in the world. And I said, I'm going to become the best possible gymnast that I can be, but this time I'm going to do it for myself and, um, not for anyone else, because at this point I couldn't go to Olympics. So it's like, I'm, I'm literally just doing it to, 
you know, prove to myself yeah. that I, I have, um, I, I get to write my narrative. You could do it. And so I ended up training, traveling, competing for nine months across Europe, Grand Prix World Cup competitions. And I ended up at the world, um, the national championships in the United US and won every single gold medal. I won athlete of the year. And then I was like, <laughs> peace, bitches. Now I am out. And this that is, is what I'm talking I about. You're yeah. leaving on your terms and your narrative. And you decided that you're going to be the champion your own way. And that mm -hmm. is badass. I absolutely love that. So let's let's pivot. Yale, talk about competition, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, what was, I mean, is it what they say? I mean, is it just ruthless competition there? What's, what's it like at Yale? And what did that prepare uh, you for? No, I don't, I didn't see Yale. No? I mean, every, that was a breeze after gymnastics. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm um, on vacation now. This yeah. is easy stuff. Uh, I mean, it was a very interesting transition going from having training nine hours a day and then suddenly I had so much time. I'm like, oh, wow, like normal kids, they just go to class and then they can eat oh, a nice did, lunch. Did you have much of a social life when you were in training for gymnastics for all those years? Was this your first real like major socialization? Yeah. So I didn't really like have having any a life? social life in uh, growing up. So until I went to college, I felt like it was, I felt like college was more um, discovering who I was socially, uh, just in the world outside of a competitive linear achievement. Mm -hmm. And so it was also a time of trying to figure out what my next passion was going to be, which was really difficult having focused on one passion for my entire adolescent life and then um, trying to figure out what my intellectual passion was. And I tried out seven, eight different majors, uh, you know, ha didn't really know what I liked. And that was really difficult for me because I do like, I do like at the end of the day, committing a hundred percent to something. Um, and it, yeah, it's hard when you are in that indecision moment. So I definitely found who I was. Uh, you know, it was like I drank alcohol for the first time. I like went on my first date ever, like in college. Like everything just kind of opened up for me. And, and most people, when they go to college, they've you know they've gone to a party before. <laughs> they've you know drank some wine or vodka shots before, and um, they know how to socialize. And I was just discovering a completely new side of myself. That's exciting, though. Mm -hmm. Right. That's yeah. the, where did, where did the other side come from? Where did, where did you, where did you get that first taste of entrepreneurship? Where'd you get bit by that bug? Was it in college? It was. Yeah. I actually started my first, uh, call it club startup thing. And it was called, uh, Yema, the Yale event management association. And it was, um, I threw, I, I created this events club where I was working with local businesses to help them, um, market their, uh, like their stores to the student body. Um, so I said, you know, I'll set up events for you. I'll do the marketing for you, attract Yale students to come to your store. And, um, yeah, so I think that was the first time where I just felt like I, I kind of want to try out this thing. I have this idea. I feel like I could do it. And, um, and I, that, that club lasted for, I think a good, five years after I graduated oh, college wow. where people were still they, some legacy were, there. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. So you wrap up at Yale, 
And then was it like an automatic, this is what I want to do? And like, how did the hedge fund world come calling? Oh, that was really random. Uh, I, I, so at Yale, they have all the investment banks and consulting firms coming and recruiting the students. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And, um, I, I honestly, I think everyone has this question in the beginning. I'm like, wait, so what is management consulting? Why? Right. It seems like this all encompassing <laughs> BS buzzword. I mean, yeah, I remember hearing like, that too. Like some of my friends were like, they were, they were MBAs. They were doing the yeah. five-year program and they were getting scouted by, you know, the, 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 the big four, the big five firms. And I'm like, what, what are you, what are you doing there? You're like, yeah. are you an accountant? Are you like, what? No, they could work consulting. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. What are you consulting yeah. on? I mean, I, and then even investment banking, I was like, mm -hmm. I don't really get what this is. Um, and yeah, so I tried out some of those interviews and I ended up getting a paid fellowship to study in China for a year post-grad. And so that was really helpful. Uh, I was studying Mandarin and um, doing economic research just um, while I was traveling and it was great. And I ended up, um, I ended up doing some work. Uh, in terms of researching some some parts of the local Chinese uh, economy, and my what who was going to become my boss actually ended up um, sitting next to me at a restaurant. Um, it was one of those communal tables in New York where you're just sitting with like random people, this big community dinner table. And he overheard me talking to my friends about my fellowship in China, the research I was doing, and how I was kind of finishing the the time up as I was thinking about what my next step would be. And then they were looking for interns and that, that internship turned into a job. Of, and I was like, well, I have nothing, nothing else to do. Um, but in general, a lot of these firms, when it comes to consulting, banking, you know, finance for those big like analyst roles, they're just looking for smart people, right? right. Who they can train and and that's that's really how I got started there. Which is interesting, too, because if you kind of fast forward now, which is a question I have for much later on, is when you're looking at um, opportunities to invest in, how much do you weigh betting on the jockey versus betting on the horse and going back to that experience when somebody bet on you, right? How did that experience infuse now when you evaluate opportunities? Yeah. So I put a very big emphasis on the, the founder um, because what I found in um, what I, I think, again, going back to this mindset of being a winner and being a fighter, it's either you have that hunger and that fire or you don't. And I think that sometimes I've noticed that if someone comes from privilege, if they haven't really struggled in their past, um, they, it's hard. Like they, they don't, they don't have that and it doesn't matter how great the idea is. And this is also like, also with women, a lot of <laughs> Again, going back to the enoughness conversation, women have imposter syndrome, I think, a, a lot more um, or like manifest that in ways that are where they're shrinking themselves. And I also see how that is like that also just doesn't work. And having moved from entrepreneur, I mean, I'm still an entrepreneur, but now having also the perspective of being an investor and seeing that um yeah, it is so important for women to understand their worth because when 100%. you aren't when you are not sure about your own vision, like why would anyone else have conviction in your vision? So I I definitely at the end of the day, it's like I can't invest in a company unless I see that um that 
that tenacity in the founder of they're going to do whatever it takes to make sure they're successful. Hey, everybody. I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. I want to go back for a moment and, and actually talk about those, those nine months in China. Um, what was, was that experience like? Did you find time? Did you, did you go back to your parents' childhood home? Did you have any of those kind of feelings of, of what if? What if we stayed here? What if we grew up here? What, what was that experience like? Um, We're trying to trying to relate, trying to like, okay, this is this is where you know my family's from. This is the heritage. This is where the roots are. Like, did you feel any of that, or were you so focused on the the fellowship? I mean, I it definitely was interesting going back to China as a like, you know, I I'm born in America. I was raised in America. When I when people see me, I've I'm very much a Western demeanor. Um, and it was funny. I remember this one time I was running on the university track, just jogging and a guy comes up to me and he's like, where are you from? I'm like, oh, you don't think I'm from here? And he's like, no, you run like a Westerner. <laughs> what does that <laughs> I was like, mean? Oh, what, the, I know. <laughs> what does that, I've never, I mean, that's I, never heard of it too. I was like, oh, interesting. But yeah, when, when is I, is it a walk, compliment? Is it an insult? Is it an observation? Like where's it going compliment. with that? I, I okay. definitely think, cause I think, um, Westerners, uh, you know, using their term, it's like, we were like, I'm like going for it. I'm leaning in, I'm leaning forward. I'm like running. And mm, then I think they fair. perhaps lean back a little bit. Um, it's, it's not as like kind of aggressively forward, um, which is kind of American individualism. It's just like, let's go. Um, yeah. And you're also running as a professional, a highly tuned athlete, true, right? True. You're, you're running a little bit different. So it's like noticeable. It's like, geez, is that yeah. a Ferrari out there or, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Fort yeah. Pinto. But I, I've, I've gotten that when I, when I walk, like literally when I walk in around on the street or, um, in like, I would go into shopping centers and then the store clerks would be like, where are you from? And I would always find it interesting that given that I am a hundred percent Chinese by blood, that they would see that there was something different. And, um, they, in Chinese, there's this, uh, there's a term called qizi. And qizi is like your, your aura, your energy. And I think that what I have had in this, it's, it is like when the aura, like as a gymnast, you know, like shoulders back, neck high, you know, you, there's a sort of like confidence. Your carriage, your posture, yeah. confidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think as my internal self-worth has grown, that has also grown um as just like naturally the the physical you know exudes that and i think that yeah so being being there was interesting because it's like i i do feel like i am american and uh there there's a i think in chinese culture there's definitely more of that like group mentality you know it's i mean it's a communist state after all and it's just like don't shine too brightly America's the country of individualism and, you know, maximalism. So, um, the, uh, yeah. And, and I, I did feel like, okay, it's so interesting seeing so many people who look more like me. Um, and, uh, there was a, also a 
gratitude that my parents did take the risk to come over to the U.S. and give me the ability to learn, like activate my creative part of my brain. You know, you're, it's an invaluable experience. So your first startup and, and during the research, it was a little bit hard to find some information on Foos. What was, <laughs> what was, what was Foos all about? Yeah. Uh, Foos was a late night munchies delivery company. And I, you know, you get your food and you snooze. Um, and, you know, it was my own experience coming out of college and going out and being like, why is it so difficult to order food? And so much decision fatigue. I can't figure mm -hmm. this out. And I wanted to just make it simple for people. You know, one tap, you have your three top choices and working with restaurants on their, um, uh, basically their additional supply at the end and like, you know, choosing one dish that they would, uh, serve. And right. I realized that I didn't, I hated logistics. Um, I actually would rather be the one getting served food than serving everybody else food. And, um, and yeah, it was during that time that I, when I was fundraising and I realized just how hard it was to fundraise as a female entrepreneur and ended up building my next company, which was actually a problem that I cared more about when I realized how many women struggled so, to. So let's put a timestamp on foods. What year, what year was that to give everybody a reference roughly? 2014. Right. So if you think about it from a, a tech perspective, what was out there on the market? There wasn't, I mean, I guess it was Grubhub, right? Like you're thinking about what are those problems out there? It was like seamless. There. Like, see, it was right. just, Seam you'd have massive menus. Yeah. Right. And, and I always talk about when I, <clears throat> shifting gears for a moment, I talk about, and when I put on my career coach hat for a moment, I'm talking to younger folks and I talk about internships and the same logic applies to early startups is knowing A, your strengths and weaknesses, where you could outsource, where you could have others do it, but really understanding what you don't like. And you mentioned logistics, yeah. what you don't like to do. So you could really focus your energy on the things that you'd like to do. And you're learning about the, that you want to focus on a problem to solve and a problem mm -hmm. that you care about. And correct me, that takes us to SheWorks. Yeah, yeah. So SheWorks was a, it was meant to just be like a support group for other female entrepreneurs who are having difficulty fundraising. And I just realized that I loved building a community of like-minded women and who are all striving for bigger goals. And I ended up, uh, what turned, what started as a community turned into a business, uh, events, membership, and it was really focused on closing the funding gap and getting women access to capital. So we were doing, she works breakfast, uh, connecting women to investors, bringing them in and really changing the power dynamic so that it wasn't always you're you're pitching but you're mm -hmm. you're actually building a relationship with the investors earlier on and and there's other amazing platforms my, my wife's involved in a number of them I, we have friends that are in um in chief and other ones how, how, how what was the point of differentiation between she works and say a, a a chief or some of these other uh female empowerment business organizations yeah i mean this we started pre me too like there was no chief there was really not much conversation at all vocally um around the funding gap and uh female entrepreneurship and you know it was it, it was it was a very different world even then than it is now where there's a proliferation of these kinds mm -hmm. of groups but i would say that the focus was really on connecting women who were actively fundraising directly with investors and bringing them into our breakfast format. And then we had our SheWorks 100 summit. We brought in 
100 women, nearly 50 top VCs and angels. And so everyone had the opportunity to really connect with each other in a very like different dynamic way. And so we had chapters and chapter directors. And um, I think it, it, you know, back then it was also very much a movement. And um, right. yeah. So she works gets acquired by Republic. What was that experience like being on the on that side of the of the of the negotiation table? What did, what did you learn from that? Um, what I learned from that was the importance of aligning yourself with a company that you think can um, has aligned vision and values and can really Im- preserve the brand integrity. Um, and I think it, it was also just, um, it was funny because I had a vision for it. Um, and I realized that I, I had kind of gotten to where I wanted to with She Works and the brand. And I was like, I feel like I'm ready for the next step, I feel like for the next evolution. And, um, you know, I was thinking outside of the box in terms of, well, what's, what's the new wave of fundraising? And, and they were the market leader in equity crowdfunding and involving, you know, the, the democratizing access involving the masses. And so I was not about to go build my own, you know, investment tech platform at that point. And so it just, it kind of made sense. And then it was really just a a conversation of aligned vision and values. Tremendous learning. So where let's, let's get into the, the, the bad bitch story. And Tell everyone out there where, where, the, where the, the origin, the ethos, and this whole mentality, the, the good girl mentality, because it's kind of a play on bad bitch, gr- good girl mentality. I'd love for you to dig in. Let's, let's unpack it. Let's go in here. Sure. So as part of the work that I've done in terms of coaching and, and working with female leaders and, and startup CEOs was realizing that all these women were coming to me asking for everything from negotiation to fundraising tips, and that the issue was not the tactics. It was actually at the end of the day that they didn't feel like they were worthy or deserving of the money, the opportunities. And I realized that there was something much deeper like in the subconscious that we had to tackle. And I I always consider I'm always my first guinea pig when I I, I analyze myself and say, okay, why did I react this way? Why do I feel this way? Why am I limiting myself this way? And what I saw in myself, I saw in all these women. And it was just the realization of um, now the term, term that I use is good girl brainwashing. And good girl brainwashing are all the societal media messages that train women to be silent to play small and be subordinate to the status quo. And it trains us to not bet on ourselves, to be afraid of risk, to not dream bigger. It has good girl habits like people pleasing and toxic perfectionism Mm -hmm. and not asserting your voice, not asserting your boundaries. And at the end of the day, what it does is it, it causes you to be afraid of betting on your own dreams and you prioritize everyone else and everyone else's dreams before your own, because there's a part of you that doesn't feel like, it's possible or that you're worthy of having that be, be a reality. And um, it goes so deep. And I talk about this in my book of everything from religion to philosophy to the way our capitalist system really structures a woman's role in all of it and how we have been shamed um, around everything from having a, a voice, having uh, pride in our bodies um, and and 
That's why I say definition of a bad bitch is a woman who unapologetically takes charge of her body, her boundaries, and her bank account. And I chose the word bitch very intentionally because this is a word that we often use to describe a woman who is, Mm -hmm. say, cold or aggressive or... Negative connotation. Yeah, too opinionated and um, maybe too pushy. And what I realized is what that's actually describing oftentimes, especially in... Um, the context of a woman being a leader is that's actually just a woman who knows what she wants, is very clear about her opinions and what she cares about, is unwilling to tolerate disrespect and is going to walk away from anything that doesn't see her value. And so what we have actually turned the word bitch into, it's a, a way to weaponize a woman's power against her. And so the reclamation of the word bitch is really a reclamation of our power as women. And then, of course, being a bad bitch is also just uh, embracing that that playful side of saying, you know, we like you, you don't have to be a good girl to be accepted. You can you can do things your own way and you can really break down barriers and be unapologetic about that. I, I love it. First and foremost, I am I am married to a badass bad bitch. And everything that you're saying exemplifies her and what she's built. And by the time this episode airs, I would have recorded my 300th episode with my wife. And we're going to dig into this. We're going to dig into these tenants that make her the strong, badass woman that she is. And I'm also a proud girl dad. I <laughs> My daughter is everything. I need my company after her. It's the legacy. Everything that I'm doing is for her and, and her brother, who wasn't born when I launched this, but he'll, he'll get his eventually. <laughs> what, what advice would you give me as a father? to raise my daughter with these tenets and and principles and values that you're discussing? I mean, I think that one thing that we tend to do with girls is we tend to see girls generally as like a bit more fragile or need to be protected. And um, rather than focusing, I think, on ways in which she has to fit in certain boxes, I think one of the things is really allowing her to see what's possible for her and allowing her to speak her opinion and say, you know, what do you think about this? Like, what, what are your thoughts on this? Um, oftentimes girls are, are complimented for how pretty they are, how sweet they are, how kind and giving and nice they are. And rather, can we also compliment her on, wow, you have such an incredible imagination. Like, wow, you're so creative and like, and, and, Though that sort of positive reinforcement of her mind and her voice rather than just positive reinforcement of how she looks and how she is helpful to other people, I think does a lot. Well, it's, it's good to hear that because we, we are on, on the right track with that. So let's, let's pivot and let's talk about the book. What did you learn about yourself? I love asking authors this question. What, what did you learn about yourself, Lisa, from the process of writing the book? So the book took two and a half years from book deal to publishing. And the the interesting thing about writing a book like The Bad Bitch Business Bible is that it's very intimidating to be the author of that Bible <laughs> and to look in the mirror every day and say, I am the bad bitch. And when I started it, the the term bad bitch was this term that I kind of muttered you know, it's like, P.S., I'm a bad bitch. This is my alter ego persona. And I 
realized as I was writing the book and kind of sharing advice, my own good girl experiences and mistakes and how I would recommend my reader to take action to overcome those things that there were still parts of my life that I was not fully embodying being the bad bitch I was talking about. I wasn't walking the walk. I was still allowing other people to cross my boundaries. I was still not prioritizing myself in the way that I wanted to. I was still not necessarily asserting my worth fully. And I just realized that I couldn't in good faith write this book if I wasn't walking the bad bitch walk. And so it really forced me to level up in a lot of ways. Um, And also to realize that being a bad bitch isn't always just about being like, uh, just constantly confident and always out there and going after it. And, um, that it's okay to be vulnerable. Yeah. So, I mean, my book is extremely vulnerable, um, which sometimes people are surprised about when they see the cover, like a very strong, Mm -hmm. unapologetic, confident woman. And I think that at the end of really what this book is all about and being bad, which is all about is, is radical self-acceptance, self-trust, self-belief, and self-love. And I think that's where the Bad Bitch Empire has come about and this, this, the, the slogan of unapologetic worth and wealth for women, um, which is that the idea of there, there isn't perfection. Like there isn't that moment when you're like, I'm, I just am. Um, and it's a constant evolution of, of stepping into your most authentic and powerful self. And I think that that's, as I have learned to love and forgive myself and you know, on a daily basis, it's, you know, you're, you're never a hundred percent perfect each day. No. And so, um, Can't. yeah, yeah. So I think it's, it's even for me, the evolution of what does it mean to be a bad bitch? Because also I, I also realized that what I was putting myself in a trap of, um, ironically, it was like the toxic professionalism again was okay. Now that I, Mm -hmm. yeah, now that people see me as this woman, I have to put on this, like, I'm just like crushing it. It's like, great. I'm building this empire and it's awesome. We're making money. And I was like, I have, there's so many tough days and it's, it doesn't, it actually doesn't get easier. Um, now there's, it feels like there's even more pressure. Cause like, you're running an empire, a bad bitch empire, that, that brand, the, the weight. Gotta of, be delivering on the promise of the empire. I, I know. Right? Empire can't be, you know, it's gotta be something, something there. And there's, there's pressure there. Lisa, yeah. who, who, who's this, who's this book for? Who should be picking it up? I think it, it's really for, I mean, first and foremost, it's for any woman who feels like she was meant for more that, um, feels like sometimes her, her doubt, gets in the way of her own dreams that she feels like she wants to, but maybe something's holding her back. She deals with imposter syndrome, but she's, she's ambitious. She wants to create change in the world. She wants to be a leader and she wants to do it her way. And, and she feels like perhaps there's something in this current system or reality that isn't serving her. Um, and she, she's tired of fitting into the same box and listening to what everyone else tells her she should be doing. Um, and I I also think for men, um, there are a a good amount of men who have picked up this book and actually read it. And as they realize like, wow, there's a lot of things that I, as a man can learn and also to more deeply understand the nuances Mm. of the feminine perspective, uh, in, in the workplace and in this world. 
See, that, that's, that's critical. In, in this world of DEI and B, this world of in, in inclusion and equity and understanding, leaders, even in this 2023, so many male leaders are lacking that perspective. I mean, this should be like almost a, a mandatory, you know, coursework before you get into the C-suite at a, at a Fortune 500 company. Yeah. How are you working with, 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 with larger organizations? And are, they, are you approaching them? Are they approaching you? And what's the receptiveness before and after? Yeah. So, so far, the main thing that I've been doing has really around been the good girl brainwashing, break free of good girl brainwashing workshops. So I work with their female employees and female leaders and lead these workshops on helping them overcome imposter syndrome, um, identifying their good girl habits that are standing in the way of really becoming uh, great leaders and and their best and most powerful selves. And um, yeah, so far that has been just a really great opportunity to to connect more deeply and and you see that ripple effect as women become more confident that's that's tremendous um what would you say is the most important outside of your family the most important female role model to you and why dead or alive hmm i mean there's always i i always looked up to the way oprah um, you know, I, I've, Oprah has created her career and I think, especially as a woman of color who during a time where the world was not at all receptive to hearing that kind mm -hmm. of voice, um, the amount of hardship that she went through, the fact that she's created so much mass influence prior to any sort of social media, really through dedicated effort and talent in terms of bringing other people's stories out. Um, I, I definitely just have always looked up to her career as, as a woman who stayed authentic to what she was good at and also was able to empower her audience. Would Oprah be your dream? Who, uh, who's, who's your top three dream guests for your podcast? Oh, um, I've never, I never I have three different episodes. I never asked this to another podcaster. Crazy. I, I think the three people I would love to talk to are, uh, Oprah, Rihanna, who's also built her, badass, you know, billion dollar empire. Um, and also Reese Witherspoon, um, who has mm. done an incredible, um, oh, job yeah. with, you know, her, her business and amplifying other female voices and authors and, and really changing the way you do a business in the media, like Hollywood landscape. Well, you and I both know that you're a lot closer to those folks now with everything that you're building there. So let's, let's bring it home. Um, this show's my masterclass. I get to talk to incredible folks like yourself and shine a light on you and, and share these lessons learned. So Lisa, what is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on every day? Could be a mantra, something you wake up to start the day, something that gets you going. What, what do you lean on? Well, this is a quote of mine directly from the book, which is, a woman steps into her full power, not when she is finally given permission to do so, but when she realizes she never needed permission in the first place. Ooh. Hell yeah. And that's a good of course one. applicable to anyone. Um, but I think it's really, it's really around this idea of this good girl idea of permission asking and waiting for someone else to say, you can do it. And the most powerful is when you realize you're like, well, no one's going to give you the permission to do it. <laughs> you just, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. And last but not least, um, 
for me, it's been this, this podcast has been fascinating, not in addition to what we've been talking about for the last 46 minutes, but in my prep work and my research work, learning about you and your background and who you are. And as you spoke about the ups and downs and that tenacity and persistence and drive that make you who you are. So Lisa, when you look back on that and those hard times, that moment when you found out you did not make the Olympic team, all those years of effort and training, and you had to pull yourself up and harness that inner tenacity to drive you forward. And now you sit here with gratitude for this empire that you've built and building and empowering so many women. Lisa Carmen Wang, what is your compass? What is your beacon? What is your North Star in life? I, I mean, I think the world needs powerful female leaders. Um, when you look at what's happening in the world right now and the way that there is so much violence and war and political manipulation um, and how women and children are often the first uh, group that can, that, that bears the brunt of it. And, you know, the way you destroy societies is by destroying the women and the children. And, and a lot of our, you know, let's face it, the male leaders understand this. And I think that there is a reason why um, women's power, our, our bodies, um, our voices have been shamed. Um, because that's how you, the, if you, if you shroud a woman's power in shame, she will never see it. She will never realize it. And so I think that for the, the sake of our civilization, for humanity, um, there needs to be more balance and more women who are coming into their own and realizing that they have the capacity to be leaders of our corporations, of our countries, um, and, and leading the world in a very different direction towards collaboration and care for future generations for the planet. And I think women have that natural maternal, you know, nurturing instinct that is, that is what we need in our world today. I mean, damn. That is how you do it. That is how you say it. Lisa, I want to thank you so much for your time, your energy, the mission that you are on. Keep inspiring. Keep being, being that leading voice. Um, it's an honor to have you on. It's an honor to connect. I really look forward to building our relationship. We're going to talk for a moment uh, offline. I've been writing little notes on my pad here. Um, check out the book. Wherever great books are, are sold, The Bad Bitch Business Bible on Amazon, wherever great books are found. And you can find out more at Lisa at lisawang.co. Where else could folks find you? Where could they connect? Where could they learn more? Uh, badbitchempire.com. Get on the and newsletter, <laughs> the pod. And yeah, I'm everywhere at Lisa Carmen Wang. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. Hang with me one moment here as I sign off. Everyone listening, I hope that... I hope that you enjoyed this episode. This is a fantastic, fantastic show. I want to thank Lisa so much for joining me. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. If you love this show, leave a review rating. It goes a long way. Remember, be good to yourself, be better to others, and catch us next week for another great episode of The Podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pawscast on LinkedIn.
and to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>